Good morning. Help yourself to coffee. We continue our uh, weekly study for our um, weekly dose of Amuna, a weekly injection to remain mindful and cognizant. Our support group to be working on Amuna together. So we're going to today go back to we had started um, Revolbi. We had started in Ale Shore Revolbi's introduction to the uh, concept of Amuna, if you remember. And uh, now we're going to continue. We, we've Every week we take different things, Nesiva Shalom we've seen, and last week we studied Hanukkah. And so we're going back to uh, Rav Shlom Avalbi. Again, Rav Avalbi was the great Mashkiach of Yerushalayim. He was a spiritual guide and uh, leader and mentor for many years in Israel. He passed away a few years ago. And the collection of his um, essays based on the Vadim, the groups that would get together to be working on their own character development and refinement, was put together in two volumes called Alei Shur. So this is the 19th chapter, it's called Avoda Be'emunah. It's called How We Do Effort, How We Work in the Area of Emunah. And says Revolba the following, Kvar Amarnu, we already explained, Kiatsiur hu amafteach le'emunah. And here Revolba is trying to give us, what is the tool, what is the mechanism? How can we all add or work on our Emunah in a meaningful way? What is the exercise? How do you work out Emunah? Right, just like muscles, if you use them and if you challenge them and if you stretch them, they grow. And if you don't, then they atrophy and they die. So emuna is a muscle. And the more that you work emuna, the bigger and the stronger it grows. And the less that you tap your emuna, the less that you challenge it and stretch it and, uh, and work it, then the more it will atrophy. So what is the exercise for emuna? If you sit down, if you had an hour today and you said, okay, I want to work on my emuna, what would you do? Would it be a book that you read? Would it be a conversation that you have? Would it be saying Tehillim? Would it be drawing a picture? Would it be listening to music? How would you work on, how do you exercise, how do you work out the Amuna muscle in your neshama? What do you do? Individualized. Everyone has a different way of doing it. Okay, so certainly there are different things that speak to us differently. Some people, if you're listening to the music in the car and an incredible song comes on, a niggin that really stirs your soul, that moves you, it can literally bring you to tears. It can transport you back to another time in, a number, in another place, <clears throat> maybe a place where you had complete faith. So for some it is listening to music. Others it is inspirational tefillah, an amazing chazan, or a phenomenal drusha from the rabbi, or something that, uh, a rabbi, something that uh, moves you. Or it could be an experience. Something worked out, a coincidence, it wasn't supposed to happen, it just came together in a way that you never anticipated or imagined, and it, it leaves you with this, with this injection. Correct. So those are all true. But Revolva suggests a practical exercise to work out the Amuna muscle. And he says, he says the following. Tziurim, tziurim, ma'orim, machaskim, esakoach, vehemam, vasasim, esamachshava. That imagery, imagery and imagination is the key, he says, to awakening and arousing and strengthening the strength, the muscle of Amuna. You know what Amuna is? It's directing your imagination. Amuna is controlling your imagery. And if that's the case, that Amuna expresses itself in our imagery and in our imagination, in our creativity, in our mind's eye, then that's also the address, that's also the place to work on Amuna, 
to do our avodah and emunah. Rabbi Yudha Levi, the great author of, uh, of the Kuzari, Rabbi Yudha Levi, who wrote Zion Alotishali and many of the kinos that we read, the great uh, poet. So Rabbi Yudha Levi writes in the Kuzari, Hachasid, Mitzave Esamedame, Lahamtsi Haadura Shabatsuros Hanimtsaos Etlo, Beezer Hazikaron. The Chasid, the righteous person, uses his experience or her experience uses the memory to create imagery which creates reality. So your, your memory, your history of things that you saw, things that you experienced, things that you felt, allows you to create an imagination imagery which allows you to then pursue and create a reality. So says Rabbi for example, sit and picture and imagine what it was like to be at Harsinai. We have the description of the Torah of the Kolos who broke him. We know about the lightning and the thunder. We know about all the Jewish people gathered around the mountain. <coughs> Try to picture what that was like. We're reading the stories in Sefer Breshas now. Avram, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Yosef, the brothers. Picture it. Imagine it. Draw imagery in your mind of what it was like. You're studying about the Mishkan, its proportions and its ratio, its architecture, the Kalim, the utensils and the tabernacle and the base of Mikdash, the Avoda, how the Kohen brought the Karbanos and what they did. All of these different things create imagery. Because imagery is what drives our creativity, it's what drives our interests and our desires. I mean, think about how, that's exactly how the Yetzirah works, right? So if the Yetzirah works that way, we can make the Yetzirah Tov work that way. How does the Yetzirah work? Oh, I remember that chocolate cake. That was great chocolate. I crave that chocolate cake. And then we direct, I happen to be in the bakery because I, you know, manufactured that I had to pick something up for someone else so that I could be there so that I could get the chocolate cake that I'd been dreaming of because in my memory I'd been imagining the chocolate cake that I, right? And that's a sort of benign Yitzhahara. You know, maybe to the, to the men I would give another description of a Yitzhahara that they struggle with more. So, but that's exactly what the Yitzhahara does. The methodology of the Yitzhahara is to take your memory and create an imagery and an imagination and try to entice you to pursue it, to bring it from the realm of imagery and imagination into reality. That's how the Yetzirah works. We sit around imagining things and then we go try to make them a reality. The Yetzirah paints a picture in your mind of how good it will be, how delicious, how, how, how pleasurable, and then it takes that imagery in your mind that it's drawn and the mind then dictates to the body to go run after it. And if that's how the Yetzirah works in the negative, to eat the wrong thing and say the wrong thing, and listen, or watch the wrong thing, go the wrong thing, and say, if that's how the Yetzirah works in the negative, so says the Kuzari, says Rabbi Yudalevi, we can channel the exact same mechanism in the positive. Use your imagination to picture what it would be like to be doing chesed and how good it would feel. feel. Use your imagination to remember that time that you said Tehillim or that you davened or that you were really moved by tefillah. Use your imagination, use your memory to picture what it's like if your house looked like this, if your marriage looked like that, if your life looked like that, if people had this perception of you, if you carried yourself in that way. So don't underestimate the power of the combination of memory and imagination together to create a reality for yourself. Now, Rabbi Yudha Levi said this a thousand years ago, 900 years ago, in sports psychology, they're catching up to it today. 
If you Google, you could see in sports psychology, it's not only in sports psychology, you know, they deal with high-level executives and they use the same thing. In the field of psychology, social psychology, they're employing the same tactic today. You know, they'll tell a golfer, a professional golfer, will stand behind their ball. They look like they're hallucinating, right? They look like they've lost their mind. What are they doing? They stand behind their ball for a moment and they're picturing their shot. They stand behind their ball and they picture themselves and the swing and their ball and how it's going to fly and where it's going to go and how it's going to land. And then they stand up there and then they do it. There's a notion of, and it's true in every sport, and it's true in, in other areas and realms of life. They say, you know, executives, picture your goals, picture what it's going to look like and how it's going to feel when you accomplish it. Picture the steps it's going to take to get there. Picture, the beginning of your day, picture what you want your day to look like at the end of that day. So this path, this is not just, you know, hocus pocus, heebie-jeebie, kuzari, making this up for the Yetzir HaTov and for Amuna. This is a philosophy and a theory which has been researched and which is being employed by very successful people in realms and other areas realms of life, including professional sports and others. To use memory and then imagination to create imagery to then bring that into reality. And you wanted to say something? Oh, no, I just wanted to ask you if you could say imagery slash thoughts. If that yeah. would be in the same... Yeah. same you know, but th- thoughts are more conceptual. I think the idea of imagery is, it's not just like in theory or ephemeral or, or kind of um, generic. It's, I have imagery. Like I've taken a moment to, in my mind's eye, like if someone looked at me, they would think that, you know, I'd lost my mind. But I'm actually painting a picture I'm seeing myself, right? I don't know if anyone has ever done this. I haven't. And we should. I should see myself giving the sermon. You know, how do I want to sound? What do I want it to look like? How do I want it to impact people? See, see to picture, to have an imagery. So it's more than just the thought. I thought about it. I want it to be successful. Here's what I have to do. Okay, I had the thought. It's more than the thought. It's even more powerful than that. It's imagery. It's literally picturing. It's as if you're watching the movie of yourself doing whatever it is you want to do. Or you're watching the movie of something where that movie is going to stir you. Why do, why do movies have that impact? Film has that impact because when you see something, it's such a powerful force. People watch movies that are absolutely made up. They're entirely fictional and they're brought to hysterical tears. Mm-hmm. They're crying hysterically. They've lived with that person like they just lost their best friend who an hour ago before the movie they never met the person, saw the person, know the person... Now they've watched a made-up an actor is making up a fictional character and a fictional plot, and you're crying your eyes out. It's moved you. It's changed your life. I saw him well. That movie changed my life. Why does it change your life? It changes your life. Imagery is a very, very powerful tool. We don't have like, a set of imagery to program. I mean, we're so distracted nowadays. Take space. I am. Right. I mean, I mean, everyone is. I know. It's just with everything the internet. So it's almost like when you when you see what they're what what he's telling you, the imagery of Har Sinai, like, I don't know that I ever would think about that during the day, maybe when I'm sure, <laughs> right. the Parsha, right. and even if I were to think about that, I don't really, you know, maybe a movie, like, I don't even know, everyone would, you know, think about it, I think, in a different way. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's funny you say that, because... Determine what that imagery is, like, yes, you're right about Chesed, and maybe that... Right. But in terms of, like... His examples, right. Soul-touching stuff. His example. Yeah, no, I agree with you, and in fact, I always, I always thought of it as being something which is dangerous. Like, when Prince of Egypt came out, we didn't want our kids to see it. Right. Not because Prince of Egypt is, you know, has, has uh, anything inappropriate in it, yeah. but because now when they learn the Parsha and Chumash and every Pesach, 
that's all they're going to see is the way that Disney is it Disney decided that this is what it should look like. So I've always seen it as kind of dangerous. But I guess what the Kuzari is encouraging is, you know, maybe you don't have to see the way Hollywood depicted Harsinai. <laughs> but, but it's okay to see, right, Ribeiro Wine produced the movies about Rashi and the Rambam and a few of those movies. And maybe afterwards now you see Rashi based on the caricature that Ribeiro Wine decided Rashi should look like. But that's okay because we trust Rabbi Wine. And he was doing it based on Chazal and based on Medrash and based on... So that's an okay image to have. Or I guess what the Kuzari is trusting is our unique individual imagery. That there isn't some standard imagery. There's not an approved imagery. We're not going to now go produce the movie of Harsinai so that we can all watch it and that's what we'll picture. The point is that we should see it. It's a little bit like Rabbi Foreman spoke about this past Shabbos where on Shabbos morning, for those who were there, Rabbi Foreman was an amazing teacher but he took us through the story of Yosef living it as Yosef. Not as the narrator, not as reading the book from the 30,000 square feet, 30,000 feet in the air, but rather through Yosef as it was unfolding. We lived it as Yosef. So that's a different imagery. What did Yosef feel? How was he thinking? What must it have been like? What was... It's a totally different set of questions, as he pointed out, to ask, and it leads you to different conclusions. And your relationship to the whole Yosef story, your relationship to the... Air, so let's say you struggle with Yetzirah, but now you're going to try to live... What was it like for Yosef to go to the house of Potiphar every day and the wife of Potiphar, and how did he overcome it, and what were the two... And you're picturing, I mean, appropriately, but you're picturing exactly what happened that may strengthen you in your own struggle with a Yitzhahara because now you've lived it, you have, you have the imagery. So all he's saying, right, if his exact examples don't speak to you, that's okay. The point is, employ the tool of imagery. Right? Don't do it while you're driving. But if there's other, and, and Orly, you make a great point, which is really a topic for another time, but we don't make space in our lives to think. We have noise. We are surrounded by noise. And we are perpetually connected and we struggle to disconnect. When I get into an elevator at the hospital to visit someone, my phone comes out. When you're at a red light, your phone, hopefully it's only at the red light, your phone comes out. When you're, like, downtime, a second to have space, we're, we're already at the point we've been conditioned to be uncomfortable with it. Like, we start to break out in hives at the thought of being ourselves. I shared a study that was done. It was in Science Magazine, where they had men, they had different groups, but there were men in a room, and there was this device that you shock yourself, and... They actually, the study concluded that men would prefer to experience the pain of shocking themselves than be alone. Right? If in, one, in one group in the study, they had a book or they had their phone. So no one touched that device. So they touched it once because they were curious. It shocked them. Then they did their thing. They didn't go back to it. But in the other group that didn't have anything to do, they sat there a little bored. After time, they started shocking themselves. They preferred the stimulation of pain than being alone. Meaning, it's more painful to be alone than it is to have the pain of a self-induced shock, electric shock, which just tells us where we've gotten to. So we don't have the space to do that. And we need to carve that space. I made a commitment to myself that I've yet to fulfill even once, but one of these days I will. I, say, I, I want to put on my schedule that at 2 o'clock every day, I have the luxury of working right here, 2 o'clock every day I'm going to go for a walk around the lake and back to my office, but leave my phone in shul which will force me to go for a four-minute walk where I'll think and have no ability to be connected to anything else. I can disconnect from the world to think, and you know what? I haven't done it yet. <laughs> I decided that would be a great idea, and I have to do it, and i got to tell Linda, put it on my schedule, and kick me out of the office. Yeah, no, it's fine, right? She should kick me out of the office and hold my phone and make me go every day, and you're talking about a four- or five-minute total thing. You'd meet somebody. 
I might meet somebody. But I'd wave and I'd say hello and I'd walk stridently right past them and I'd be lost in my thoughts and in my imagery. You should have Right, or wear fake headphones. Yeah, exactly. No, but the point is, every one of us should be doing that. Every one of us should be... But the, even this is stimulating your thinking and your brain. Every one of us needs to dedicate and allocate five minutes a day of nothing, of disconnected from the noise of the world and just nothingness. And then in that space, you can be picturing things. You could be picturing how you want it to go when you're going to be having that important meeting or, or have that phone call you have to make. You could be picturing the doctor's visit and how you'll respond to react to whatever the doctor may tell you. You could be picturing giving the drasha that you We could be picturing Har Sinai or Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim or picturing, you know, seeing Hashem or Hashem in your life or using... What Evolba is saying is that the tool to growing and expanding and working out the Amuna muscle is using memory, imagery, and turning that into reality. Yes, Sanchez. Is that called meditation? <coughs> or is there a difference? Is that meditation? I don't think it's meditation. I have very limited experience in meditation. But in my limited experience, David Moshe moved to Israel and there went my meditation, but in, in, in my limited experience, meditation is the opposite. You're trying to clear the space in your head. You're trying to empty your head. You, the, the goal of meditation is to be thinking about nothing. And I think the theory is that only in the space of nothing will you have breakthrough, right? The thoughts that, you'll have breakthrough thoughts that come in, in the space of nothing. But the goal of meditation is to use a, a sound or a word or whatever, they, a mantra, and to close your eyes and, you know, to, to even be picturing, I guess you're using the imagery to picture your, your head clearing out and that there's nothingness in it. Here, Revolva's not endorsing thinking of nothingness. He's endorsing thinking, filling the space with something and the something is imagery. So let's keep going. You should be picturing. Like, don't, don't read the text and feel guilty or have an aversion to picturing Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim. Write the movie. Produce the movie. Direct the movie in your head. Kriyas Yamsuf, Shiras Hayam. Picture what the splitting of the sea was like. Or what, not just what it was like, but how they felt. How did motion the Jewish people? What was it like for Miriam to lead the women in song after the splitting of the sea? The Ramban actually quotes this in his Sefer HaMitzvos. The Ramban references this when it comes to Matan Torah, the giving of the Torah. Writes the Ramban Nachmanides, we have a biblical prohibition to not think about, to stop thinking about, to forget Har Sinai. This is interesting language. Our eyes, our hearts, should be there all the days. Every day we should think about we were at Har Sinai. That was unbelievable. Right? People come back from a concert. Tariq Academy had a great concert over Hanukkah. And for a week, people were talking about, wasn't that concert amazing? You remember that concert? I love when they sang that song. I love when the boys, when they danced. And how I felt. And it lifted me. And the energy in that room. And you're at that concert, that concert. And then you talk about, okay, that dies down. But for whatever period of time, oh, that energy. Oh, that part of it. Oh, that amazing thing. Were you there? That was special. Har Sinai was supposed to have created that in perpetuity. That every day, remember our Sinai? Wasn't that amazing? Hashem spoke to us and we felt a unity which was unprecedented and unparalleled. Our eyes, it's interesting that Ramban says, our eyes and our hearts should be there all the time. What do you mean our eyes? We weren't there. The only way your eyes could be there is through imagination. 
This is what Hashem said. This is a pasuk that the Ramban learns from it is a biblical prohibition. We are obligated every day to remember Harsinai, one of the Shesh Zechiros, one of the six things to remember every day. And you're not allowed to forget. And you have to tell to your kids, I was at this concert, right? You know, depending on your generation, maybe you heard your parents talk about Woodstock, whatever the memorable, I was at this thing, I'll never forget it. I went to the Lahavdi, I went to the Siyam Ashas, I remember the third Siyam Ashas in Madison Square Garden, it was rocking, it was packed. I remember going to the rally when, you know, Am Yisrael Magolan, I remember Soviet Jewry movement, right? Whatever you were at that stirred your soul and that moved you and that made you come alive, you never forget it. And you, you tell it to your children and you try to describe it in, in vivid imagery, what it was like. And it continues to animate your life. So the Maimon, a person who has faith, a person who believes the Torah is telling you accurate history and believes that the result of that history is that Hashem is intimately involved in our lives, spends the time picturing what it was like to be at the base of that mountain with 600,000 people. The mountain's on fire, reaching up to the heavens. Moshe is on the top of the mountain. And you're hearing Hashem himself say the first two Dibros, Anochi and Lo Yelacha. And now, after you're picturing, what would it be like to hear God talk? What's it like to hear God talk? What does God sound like? What's that experience like? And how would you recoil? How would you fall back from a sense of, of uh, being overwhelmed? Awe, reverence. You'll pass out as a result. And only the spiritual heavenly dew that will descend upon you will revive you. Like, uh, you know, like EMS workers uh, bringing you back to life. So if you could picture what that was like, what was it like at Arsenal? Looking around, seeing 600,000 people. Have you ever been to something? I still remember the second intifada. In the beginning, there was a rally in Washington, at Boca Raton Synagogue. We chartered a plane. We oversold it. We packed people on it. We flew to Washington. Remember, there were 100,000 people in front of the Washington Monument, and everyone was there. That was a powerful force, and that was a huge number, and you were there, and you made a special effort to get there, and what that was like. So I have to picture Harsinai. You're looking around, it's like the greatest tashlich ever. You're seeing everyone, the biggest social scene ever, Harsinai. Everyone you know is there. And then Hashem starts speaking, and how you felt, you almost passed out, you had to be revived. You will be transformed. Certain places we've been to in our lives, certain experience we participated in that transformed us forever. It gave us eternal life. And despite being overwhelmed by Hashem, you say to Moshe, you talk to us. Because you think you might die if you continue to hear Hashem. And Moshe 
is disappointed. He was standing at a distance. And the love and desire to hear Hashem did not supersede or transcend the awe and the fear of actually hearing Hashem. So Moshe is disappointed that he has to deliver the rest of the eight of the Dibros. We know the story. We know the circumstances. Picture it. Picture being there. Picture hearing it. And by the way, just also consistent with what we've been talking about in terms of creating a moon in our daily lives with our children, make that a bedtime story. Make that the bedtime story. Oh, you're in Arsina and you're looking around and this is there and that's what's happening. And there's thunder and light and smoke and it's incredible in the whole world. And Hashem speaks. What do you think that would be like? What do you think Hashem sounds like? How do you think you would feel if Hashem spoke and it knocked you down? That's how powerful it was, like a force, like a wind. You got up, you couldn't hear, you asked Moshe, what would that be like? A person who has spent the time creating a picture of what it was like to have been there and then can return to that picture over and over again, that will increase emuna. To picture yourself as being a protagonist, a character in the stories of the Torah will increase and reinforce your emuna, your faith. It will, it will empower you. It will strengthen you. Our lives are filled with unbelievable imagery. Remember that moment that you gave birth. Not the pain of childbirth, but the miracle of childbirth. To see a life emerge from you. To have been pregnant for nine months and everything be theory and, uh, and sonograms. And then to hear that cry. And to see that life. And to know that you created life. Our lives are filled with, you know, we give examples. You were on vacation and you were in a magnificent, you saw the Swiss Alps of the Grand Canyon. Uh, something which was coincidental came together and happened for you in a way that you never dreamt that it actually would. Whatever the imagery is, but come back to the imagery. Be nostalgic. Remember. Use your memory to create the imagery which reinforces Amuna. Now, the key to it reinforcing Amuna is to put Hashem in the picture. Right? It's not just the miracle of childbirth, and it's, but it's to say, wow, what a God who allowed us to successfully conceive and to give birth to a healthy child and to experience that miracle of childbirth and that amazing joy. Right? Don't just picture the, the balloons and the streamers and Mazel Tov and then who'd you call and, and so on and so forth. But picture Hashem, make sure in each of the things that you're remembering, the amazing vacation with the family, the amazing trip, that concert, that rally, that, that, that accomplishment, that achievement, that good news that you got the promotion, that, that, that uh, day you got engaged, uh, whatever you're picturing, but see Hashem in the story. What did Hashem do to allow that to come to be? What was Hashem's role? How could it never have happened without Hashem's consent and support and enabling it? And when you wax nostalgic and you remember and you're picturing and you're seeing Hashem in it, that is exercising the amuna muscle. Because what that's going to do as a result is, if you're looking back on everything significant and substantial in your life and reading Hashem into the story, you're embedding Hashem in your memory, which is also embedding Hashem in your psyche which means that as the new stories are unfolding, as the new experiences are happening, you will be more predisposed to see Hashem in them because you saw Him in the past. So if you, if you retroactively, I mean, hopefully you lived it in real time, but if you even retroactively read Hashem into the... And how do you do that, by the way? It's, it's not that hard to do because see Hashem as the writer of the story. 
Okay, you saw a movie, you remember that great movie, it made you tears, and now you remember there was a writer of that movie, a producer, who made all the things come out and happen the way they did, and made the result and the ending of the movie the way it was. And I didn't see him, he was off camera, but he was directing everything from behind the scenes. And he told the actors what to say and where to go, and he changed the weather and the circumstances and the coincidences, and he's the one who orchestrated that the movie ended the way it did, because there was a writer and a director and a producer off, off camera who were actually making everything happen. So you have to remember that. If all you do is see the movie, you forget that. So there's a writer, director, producer in our lives. His name is Hashem, and he's off camera. Even when we're remembering the rally or the concert or the vacation or the childbirth or the, or the, or the nature He's off camera. So it, it's only when we insert him back into the story that we bring him in a vivid way. He's the writer, he's the producer, he's the director. That only came to be because he wrote the story. That's amazing. So now as I live the next story, I will be more predisposed to see him in it. I'll talk about him, I'll see him, I'll be, I'll be grateful for it, and so on. And godless. Our lives are filled with and they're defined by the images of beauty and greatness and truth. A person who keeps these images alive in their heart all the time is a, is a friend of Shimon HaTzadik. Rabbi Salvechik once famously described when he was a little bit older and frail. He said this in a speech that, you know, when he walked into Shear to give Shear in Yeshiva University, he was, he was old and frail and his voice was, was low and he was tired. He was schlepping from Boston. And then he would start to give Shear and he said he saw that Rava and Abaye came in the room and the Rambam was there. And the Ramban was asking a question on the, on the Rambam, and it was his responsibility to answer the question, to defend the Rambam. These weren't people who lived hundreds or thousands of years ago. They were alive. They were in the room with him. In fact, the Rav remembers as a baby in the crib, hearing his father learn, Rav Moshe Salavechik, and he'd be learning out loud, and he'd say a Rambam, and then he would you know, say the Ramban's kasha, his question on the Rambam, and he started to cry. And his mother came to him to take care of him and said, Why are you crying? He said, the Ram, who's going to defend the Rambam? And this is again the Rav in his childhood. Who's going to defend the Rambam? The Rambam is being attacked. Somebody needs to come to the defense of the Rambam. But that's the home he grew up in. Rav Moshe Salavechik, when he was learning, with an earshot of his kid in the crib, who would become the Rav, he was learning in a way that the personalities were alive. Avram Yitzchak Yaakov, Yosef and the brothers, they're not dead. They didn't live a gazillion years ago. They're alive. Happening now. What's going to happen? Right? The cliffhanger of last week's portion of this one. Yosef tells the brothers, you know, leave Binyamin. You can't take him. The brothers don't know what to do. If they leave Binyamin and go home, their father's going to die. What's going to be? It's a cliffhanger. Don't tell your kids yet. They're alive now. I can't tell. I don't know the story. I don't know. Next Shabbos, we'll find out. It's amazing. What's going to be? How will it happen? How did they feel? What was Yehuda feeling at that moment? What was he thinking about? What did he picture? What in his own life? Yehuda had lost two children. Erva Onan died. Yehuda knew the experience of bearing two children. So you're going to come back and tell his father, you've lost another son, Binyamin? He knows the pain. What must he be feeling that led him to have the courage to confront Yosef and say, no, you can't do it? So the point he's making, Revolbi, is that our history should not be history. It should be alive in the present. Our memory should not be memory. It should be part of our, it should be part of our consciousness. It should be part of our mindfulness. 
We should be nostalgic and we should have the memory all the time of the extraordinary things in our lives. The extraordinary things don't have to just be extraordinary things. The ordinary things are extraordinary things, right? We talked about that last week with Hanukkah. The ordinary things are extraordinary things. Childbirth, which, you know, in Shari Tzedek Hospital, the rate of their popping up babies is ordinary. But it's extraordinary. Every healthy child is extraordinary. It's a miracle. It's Hashem. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Or, or you know, the vacation and the feeling, the, the concert. It was a Hanukkah concert. Who cares? No, it was amazing. Remember the energy? Remember we were singing? Remember the dancing? Remember the excitement? Remember you felt alive? Remember your neshama was alive? What were the things, I mean, maybe that's how I would put it. Identify the times in your life where your neshama felt alive. Not just you were alive. Not just that you had sensory pleasure. You saw something amazing or you ate something amazing or you felt something amazing. Not just sensory pleasure, but when were the times in your life that your neshama was alive? Was it a shir that you heard? Was it a tefillah that you attended? Was it a ne'ilah? Was it a hospital visit? Was it a shiva? Was it a funeral? Was it a... When was your neshama alive? And then remember that. And picture that. And see Hashem in that. And all of this contributes to working out the amuna muscle. So the amuna muscle goes stronger and stronger. And so maybe retroactively you have to read the writer into the script. But now going forward, if you've conditioned yourself in this way... Now, naturally, you will see Hashem in everything that happens. It's a mindfulness, it's an awareness, it's a consciousness of Hashem acting as the puppeteer, He's the director in everything and all the events that are unfolding in our lives. So to summarize for today, the way to exercise the Amuna muscle is to use imagery, is to not think that it's childish. Don't dismiss it as childish. And don't dismiss it as superficial or pathetic or sad. This is Ravolbi, the great Mashkiach, writing that imagery, if you have the capacity to picture being at Har Sinai, or seeing Kriyas Yamsuf, the splitting of the sea, or singing the song after the splitting of the sea, or the ten plagues, or Purim, or that you are one of the Maccabees or the Hashemunayim fighting for Hanukkah, picture it. Picture it. Draw the picture of it. Be part of the story. See Hashem in it. And not only true for our collective memory, of our collective national experiences, but individually. Use your memory of those moments in life where you felt Hashem, where your Hashem was on fire. See that Hashem was the director and producer in those events, and then hopefully it'll refine our sense of emuna going forward to continue to feel and see Hashem in our life each and every day. Questions, comments, thoughts? Yes, Yechavit. I think one of the most powerful things I learned in Shabbos was when the rabbi talked about engaging the heart. And that's what you're talking about. Right. So that is an intellectual process. But when you slow down and sing slowly and twist the moment when you're dialing, you're saying engage not just the intellectual process, but you're talking to God, you're feeling, the voice splitting, yeah. whatever. I would take it a step further because I think it's more than the heart. Because I actually think we do engage the heart. Every time someone pays something on Facebook that you read or you watched and it made you cry for a minute and then you went to the next thing, right? Every time you read that there was a stabbing and, and it tugs on your heartstrings. So we tug on the heartstrings a lot. In fact, arguably we tug on the heartstrings more than ever because of social media, everyone's constantly posting the sad video. Oh, you got to see this. Oh, you got to read that article. Oh, you got to... And it pulls on your heartstrings every time. You need a box of tissues next to your computer, next to your phone. It's constantly tugging on your heartstrings. But that's not... It's not just tugging on your heartstrings. You see, we speak to the head. 
We speak to the intellect with a sheer, with an idea, or you're, you're well-versed in politics, whatever, intellectually stimulated. We speak to the head, and we speak to the heart. What, what we think we fail to speak to is the neshama. And the neshama is neither the head or the heart. The neshama is something different, and it feels on fire. And it needs to be nourished, and it needs to be nurtured, and it needs to be cared for, but it's most often neglected. We take care of the body. Uh, my gym class, my workout, my trainer, my dad, I take care of the body. And we take care of the intellect. I go to people of the book and I go to this class and I listen to that cheer and I, I take care of the intellect. And I take care of the heart. I watch that sappy movie and I saw this article and the person forwarded me that thing. Uh, or maybe I do chesed, take care of the heart. But what are we doing to take care of the neshama? What are we doing to nurture the neshama? What are we doing to remind ourselves that we are a neshama? Right? My favorite line. We don't have a neshama. We're not a body that has a neshama. We are a neshama that has a body. What do we do to remind ourselves every day that we are a neshama that has a body. We're not a body that has a neshama. We are a neshama that has a body. What are we doing to reinforce that for ourselves? What are we doing to reinforce that for our families? How are we reminding ourselves? What are we doing to nurture and protect rather than neglect the neshama? So that's right. Yes, we speak to the head and we speak to the heart. But what do we do to speak to the neshama? I, I've been giving this a lot of thought the last couple of years and I've spoken to a lot of people. And that's why we've started this Amuna class and the men's shmooze on Thursday nights, and the, we're trying to do certain things that speak to the neshama. You know, a kumzit speaks to the neshama. If you turn the lights down and you bring out the guitars and you're singing, your neshama comes alive. Chesed speaks to the neshama, not just to the heart. It's not just that you, know, you do the chesed and it made you feel emotional. Your neshama's on fire. You leave pantry packers in Yerushalayim with your family. You know, you leave the soup kitchen on Thanksgiving morning or the, you volunteered at the fire department, you brought the whatever. Or you, your neshama is on fire. Volunteering nourishes the neshama. You feel alive more than if you went to the spa and got a facial or the mani-pedi or the great chocolate cake. Those things are pleasure. They're sensory pleasure. But when you volunteer, your neshama's alive. That nurtures the neshama. That's one thing. Music. Music nurtures the neshama. When I go to weddings, when I go to simchas, I never told anybody this, including you. When I go to simchas, you're dancing, I literally get choked up. Like I start, I feel myself crying. Every time I ask myself, why? It's not the chasen kala or the little bar mitzvah boy or the whatever. Just there's something about music and being together and the energy we're dancing and connection. And the music, it literally makes me emotional. That's the neshama. Now, if you're on your phone while you're dancing the text, or you're cynical, or you're concerned with how you look, or you're worried about whatever, so then your neshama's not going to be on fire. But if you're lost in the, in the nigun, in the, in the music, in the, in the tune, if you're feeling connected, right, the uniqueness of Jewish dancing, you're in a circle, nobody's leading, nobody's in the front, nobody's, I don't mean to knock the women's Israeli-style dancing, but that's not the, the, the Jewish, the traditional dancing in the imagery of a circle, and holding hands in a circle, a circle, nobody's in front, nobody's in back. Everybody's absolutely equal. Everybody's equal in a circle. Okay, we start to have inner circles and outer circles and concentric circles and when will the Baal Simcha pull me into the circle? But in theory, right, think about Simcha's Torah. Simcha's Torah, it's a circle. Everybody's equal and even on the circle. And everyone in the circle is on the circle because it's what at the center of the circle that they're all contributing to. The Gemara describes that La'asad Lavo when Mashiach comes, or in, in Olam Haba, there's a machol shel tzaddikim, there's a circle of tzaddikim, and Hashem is in the middle. That when Hashem wants to create an imagery of what we should be thinking about, what that's like, all of the tzaddikim are sitting in a circle. Nobody's at the head of the table, there's no dais at the front of the room, there's no hierarchy, everyone's in a circle. They're in a circle. So that, 
I'm not telling you every time I go to a wedding or Simcha Baruch Hashem, we go to a lot. I'm thinking about the Gemara and the circle. Just, there's something about music. Something about music that lifts the soul. Music can transport you in time. Music brings you to places, which is also the power and potency of music is a reminder of why it's so important to listen to the right music. There's so much of the wrong music right now. You hear, I mean, I'll admit, even our own kids, they're, they're hearing songs, they're learning songs, they don't even know what they're saying, but if you listen to the words, they are, it's vulgar. You can go to a simcha and the DJ is playing music because that just happens to be the in song, but nobody's bothered listening to the words and the words are pushed vulgar. They are descriptive, uh, you know, I, again, I'm not even trying to give you some examples because I would blush to give you examples. They are vulgar. I'm not saying all English music is bad. You know, there's old time good English music which was wholesome and which can stir the soul too. You know, I'm guilty of listening to some good English the 80s. The 80s was the greatest English music. So the 80s. So you can listen to some good 80s, good music. But the English music today, it's mamish vulgar. It's disgusting. And what it's talking about and what it's looking forward to and what it's describing and what it's recalling, it's vulgar and disgusting. And you could watch wholesome bar and bat mitzvah kids at a simcha, dancing on a floor, singing with the DJ. They don't know what they're saying. The DJ, no parent bothered listening to this music, but it's penetrating the neshama. If music has a powerful force to lift the neshama, then it also has a powerful force to be toxic and, and to be poisonous to the neshama. So we all need to be more judicial and careful and judicious and careful with what we're allowing to penetrate into the neshama. Music is a powerful... Impo- I don't know about you, you listen to a certain song from the 80s, comes on, and all of a sudden, you're back in camp. And you're in seventh grade. And you see everybody in camp and you smell what it was like in the bunk and you remember what it was like on the bus, on the trip. And music can transport you. Ah, yeah, I was in KBY that year in Israel. Ah, that song. I remember that. It can, music is unbelievably powerful. But it's powerful in both directions. So the point is, we speak to the head and we speak to the heart. We have to speak to the neshama and we have to nourish the neshama and protect the neshama and take care of the neshama. Chassidah says that music is the pen of the soul. Oh, the pen of the soul. Music is the pen of the soul. Have a great day.